We have some artifacts on the table and uh, we'll be putting out new artifacts uh, every night. Last night we talked about Egypt in the Bible and then tonight we're talking about fabulous tales, the telltales. So when we think about that, fabulous tales, that's stories, the tell, which is a mound and a ruin, tell. So what kind of stories do they tell us? So we're gonna look at Petra, one of my favorites, I think the most beautiful uh, archeological site in the world and uh, one of the great wonders of the world. So look at that tonight along with, can you really trust the Bible? That's the bottom line, can you trust scripture? So we'll look at the Dead Sea Scrolls and Bogus Koi and some fascinating stories. So it's a great one to invite people to come to uh, because it will actually give them confidence in scripture that they can trust the Bible. And then on Sunday night, the Jew, the Arab, the Christian and Jerusalem. So we'll look at the great city of Jerusalem and what's behind the different monotheistic religions, the three monotheistic religions. By the way, can you imagine what percentage of the world trace their spiritual roots to Father Abraham? Any idea? How about over 50%, about 50.3% of the world trace their roots to Father Abraham, a shepherd who wandered around there in the land of Canaan. Isn't that amazing? And so we'll look at that tonight and then uh, tomorrow night and then we'll look at, on Tuesday night, Christmas Eve in the Holy Land, the background of the world into which Jesus was born. And then on Wednesday night will be the last in this five-part series, In the Footsteps of Jesus, a pictorial journey in the footsteps of Jesus that I know you'll enjoy. So there's still some brochures out on the table. You can invite people to come. It's a uh, very uh, user-friendly experience for people to come. We're not uh, getting into heavy doctrines and things like that. So it's a really wonderful thing to invite people to come to. And uh, there's a little card that you get each evening. And then when the people fill out the card, they get a copy of the presentation of my notes. And uh, we're actually using the cards from last night, tonight at the beginning of the program, to draw for a, an artifact. It'll be a first to third century oil lamp. And uh, I just have a couple little lamps here. I'll just tell you about real briefly. Here's one. Can you see that? That's a very interesting chandelier. That's called a four wick lamp. So there's actually four corners in it and they could light four wicks at one time. They burn a lot of light, they burn a lot of olive oil doing that. So it'd be kind of expensive. So kind of went out of vogue, but this is from the time of Abraham. So we're looking like 4,000 years old. And then I brought up another little lamp that is very quintessential. This is my favorite little lamp. Isn't that beauty? This is actually called a Herodian lamp a Herodian lamp from the time of King Herod. So Jesus very likely could have had a lamp like this. So there's lots of things here on the table. Every night we put out some new artifacts to kind of illustrate. Somebody asked me about Mary and Mary anointing Jesus. Did this, was one of these instruments, was one of these artifacts kind of like that? Well, you know what? On Wednesday night, I'm gonna share the alabaster jar that I have because it was an alabaster jar that she used. I was able to acquire one of these a few years ago, and it's my favorite piece. This is close with her lamp, but that's my favorite piece. So we'll have different things that we'll share with you each evening. I want to just encourage you to come out and uh, to encourage your friends to come and enjoy the series. So again, thank you for having me to come. It's a blessing to be here. Well, thank you so much for coming, Tony. We appreciate it. What a blessing. And this is indeed a great event to invite others to, so we hope that you'll do that. Invite your neighbors. If you have neighbors that are homeschoolers, homeschool kids are always looking for 
additional activity type things like this. So it's, it's a real blessing, and we hope you'll come out um, night after night. Well, again, uh, Jesus welcomes you, and we welcome you. Good to see you all here today. We have a fairly large group of teachers and some students at Delton today. We probably doubled their uh, attendance at Delton today, but praise the Lord for that, and uh, we pray God's blessing on them. Of course, our big focus is, um, and, and what even Tony is focusing us towards, is Paul Punch coming. And when does that series start? Next Friday, right? So those of you that were already here on Friday, you're used to coming on Friday. Next Friday, we start our series with Paul Punch, and it's going to be tremendous. And, you know, we just don't know how much time we have left, right? How many more series are we going to be able to do um, how many other people are you going to be able to invite is a good question. So um, invite, you know, pray about your neighbors and friends and co-workers and invite people to come. Um, this may be just the opportunity they need to hear the gospel. We never know when um, our days are done, right? So uh, we hope you'll do that. Plan on coming. We've been announcing this obviously for a while and we need you here for at least two reasons. Reason number one, every evangelistic series is also a revival, right? So our hearts get revived as we also revive the community. So that's one. But the second reason too is if we have a lot of visitors, which we have had in the past and only a few little members, the visitors are saying, where are your members? So we wouldn't want that to happen. So there's at least two reasons that we'd love for you to come and be blessed. Um, Paul Punch is a very clear, articulate preacher, very gospel-centered. So you'll hear prophecy, but it'll be very much gospel-centered. So plan on coming and bringing a friend. Our sermon title today is Prisoners of Hope from Zechariah chapter 9. That's where we're going to be turning. I usually give a little health talk here. I'm not going to. I was going to talk about zinc, I'll do that another time. It's very important in our fight against um, COVID and just things in general to, uh, to boost our immune system. But instead, I'm going to share um, something about this project that's going on called the Green Sabbath Project. How many of you have ever heard of the Green Sabbath Project? Okay, very few, almost nobody. So the Green Sabbath Project is uh, linked with Pope Francis, and he links the natural environment with human ecology, showing how concerns about poverty and climate change and other social justice issues go hand in hand. And this is a quote from him, the Sabbath sheds its light on the whole week and motivates us to greater concern for nature and for the poor. Well, I don't disagree with that statement, but recognize what Sabbath he's talking about, right? What, what Sabbath, I say, quote, unquote, is he talking about? Sunday, right? He's not talking about the Sabbath, which is today, which is Saturday. So very interesting where this is going. And of course, there's a worldwide movement with the Pope at the helm to um, connect climate change with this green Sabbath as they call it, which is actually Sunday rest connected with climate change. Recently, there was a meeting. The Pope met with 
Archbishop of Canterbury and the Orthodox Church leader. This represents huge swaths of the population getting together on climate change. So it looks like that is a direction that they may use to get to what we all know transpires in Revelation 13. One world order, one ruler, one economy. It's a quote, it is our profound conviction that the future of the human family depends also on how we regard the gift of creation that our creator has entrusted to us. A lot of truth to that too, isn't there? Uh, which direction will that be taken? At the bottom of this slide, it talks about the poor. Now, if Laudato Si, which is the papacy's plan for the economy of the world comes to pass, there'll be a lot more poor among us. Um, the Pope is the only leader I know that's put together a plan for the economy for the entire world. Kind of interesting. And here is a quote that I want to share with you from Laudato Si. You probably think, well, I worked hard. I paid off my property so I could have it debt-free and you know, not have to worry about that and you know, maybe pass it on to my kids down through you know, time and so forth. Well, not so fast, according to Laudato Si, because your private property is not really yours. That's what this says. The principle of the subordination of private property to the universal destination of goods. That private property, that's your property, but no, it's not because it's subordinated to the universal destination of goods and thus the right of everyone to their use. So it's not really yours, it's kind of everybody's. He says this, is that thought is a golden rule of social conduct and the first principle of the whole ethical and social order. Very interesting. Goes on to say the Christian tradition has never recognized the right to private property as absolute. You thought that was your property? No, not really. Uh, or inviolable and has stressed the social purpose of all forms of private property. Now that sounds like socialism, communism, doesn't it? And you know, socialism, communism, you know, we see these videos of people walking into stores and just taking, you know, bags full of goods and, and the security, you know, waves as they go by. Nobody calls the police. In fact, I guess they're told not to call the police. Uh, one of your old pastors, David Tennell, told me he was in Indianapolis this week at Burlington store. And there was a trainer training a trainee and the trainer was telling the new employee, you know, if someone, you know, walks out with goods and, you know, you know they haven't paid for them, we're, we're to do nothing about it. Don't call the police, you know, just, just let them walk out. And, uh, I mean, I knew that was happening in San Francisco, but I didn't know it was happening in Indianapolis. So, very interesting. And so, this uh, bit about giving up our property to others, I'm going to have two people come up now, uh, just briefly here. My wife, Olgitsa, and David Lawrenson, who both know each other from Yugoslavia, uh, where they uh, grew up at least part of the time. And they're going to tell us just briefly about socialism, communism, because um, you know, it could be seen as a good thing, but how has it actually worked 
in practice. Maybe have David go first. How's that uh, worked out? Well, I want to share a quick story with you about four people named everybody, somebody, anybody, and nobody. There was an important job to be done, and everybody was sure that somebody would do it. Anybody could have done it, but nobody did it. Somebody got angry about that because it was everybody's job. Everybody thought anybody could do it, but nobody realized that everybody wouldn't do it. It ended up that everybody blamed somebody when nobody did what anybody could have. And that, in essence, is socialism. It is all ours. And because it is all ours, somebody else can take care of it. Somebody else will. It is not my responsibility because it is not mine. And so it doesn't matter what kind of a job I do, whether I do good, bad, as long as I show up and punch the ticket, that's fine. And what do you get? You all remember the Yugo? That came from Socialist Federal Republic of Yugoslavia. And we thought it was great. Hey, it was being sold here in the States. This is great. What they didn't tell us is the car and driver magazine described it as slightly more desirable than an ox cart. <laughs> the point is, you know, we are told that as Christians we should share. And in socialism, everything's shared. But in socialism, it's not a question of whether you'd like to share, whether that comes out of your heart. No, you, you're going to be told, essentially at the point of a gun, you're handing this over to some government functionary who will, in their beneficence, trade it for favors and whatever else to impart it upon the people for whom it is meant to. And that is not the Christian way. In fact, if you read with me in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7, Paul says, Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And that is the key difference right there. Yes, as Christians, we are to give, but that is not what happens in socialism. You are, compelled, you, can, you are compelled, you are forced to give over, and at the end of the day, then you don't care what you do, how you do it, because it's just going to get taken away from you. You're not inclined to innovate or improve, and you get a Yugo. And so that's why Paul says in... 2 Corinthians 9 uh, and uh, verse 11, God, it, Paul says, You will be made rich in every way. For what purpose? So that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. So God wants us to have stuff and as Dave Ramsey says, the most fun you can have money, if you have it, is to give it away for a good purpose.
And now my dear wife here, and uh, she has a story for us about her grandparents and uh, what happened to something similar to this. Well, I grew up just like David in communist Yugoslavia, and then when I was a teenager, uh, the country turned into socialism. So communism is like a, just a mild form, uh, socialism is mild form of communism. You see Mark, uh, um, Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels were the founders of the communist idea. And the idea sounds beautiful, but it's only possible if you teach people to believe in God and to believe to be unselfish. See, the thing was you work, you get paid, and then you go to the store or go to whatever, whatever you, whatever you need, and you take what you need, and you don't pay for it. Well, that works wonderful if you're an honest person, but if you're taught without believing in God and without any consciousness, your, your selfish nature will come out uh, because that's what we're all born with, and everybody is gonna think, oh, I need more than what I really need. And then you end up in a disaster. Uh, just like David said, the workers, they never felt like the job was theirs, and so they never had that ownership feeling, so they would just come and work, and then they would leave work, and because they would get paid work or not, because everybody gets paid equally. Um, what happened to my grandmother is, my great-grandmother, their family co-op, uh, five sons of the Vitorovich family, and this is written in a, in a book, Whom Shall I Fear, from Ann Vitorovich. Um, they had 200 acres, and the communists said, okay, all the rich people who have too much acreage, we're gonna take their land and give it to other people because everybody is to have equal amount of acreage. Well, they took 175 acres from them, leaving them with 25 acres for five sons. So each son really had only five acres, and then he had to split those acreage to, he, to the amount of sons or daughters that each have. So you can imagine probably one to two acres really end up to be in the family. And so they just took it, they, um, they would have other people have it, and what happened, I was just talking to my father last night, and he says what happened is uh, people didn't know how to do, um, how to work with the land. They would get, get given land, but they never have been farmers. And so, so much land stood empty. And um, so then they said, okay, we're gonna form a co-op, um, and we're gonna form like an agricultural co-op. And so the government was owning the land, and then they would hire people to work on the land. But my dad said, he said people didn't feel ownership of the land, didn't feel like it was theirs, so they were very sloppy in the work, they didn't work all day long, um, and um, you know, we were losing money all along through the history of Yugoslavia, we were going broke, and eventually we did, and eventually the war broke down, uh, because you can't live um, just doing the work and not doing it like people do here in this country. Everybody is conscientious because you see, this country was based on God's principle. Mm -hmm. And this country is based on consciousness, but 
connected with the Lord. And the Lord gives you consciousness to be honest and to do your job right. When you are taught from, from first grade that God doesn't exist, that God is not there, and that you don't, should believe in anything that you can't see, touch, or feel, then you have no consciousness. You are your own God and you do whatever you want to do. And that is a recipe for disaster. Thank you so much. Let me help you down. Wasn't that interesting? It's a little different perspective, right? And so don't think of communism, socialism as, oh, that means if I need something, I can just walk into a store and grab it. That's not the way it works. <laughs> The way it works, look at Cuba, right? The way it works is you stand in a line for four or five hours and you might get one item that you might or might not need. Um, a communal system, it's going to work in heaven, right? But on earth, it has not worked and, and will not work. And so this is um, an interesting day in which we live. I will say this, I don't know of any prophecy in the Bible you could maybe stretch Revelation 13 there that says that America will become socialistic or communistic. So that's good news. But, you know, I, not everything is written in the Bible. So it's interesting the direction we see things going. How many of you think that time is short on this earth? Do you think we're getting towards the last days of earth? I really think we are. And this prophecy Along with what Tony Moore's doing, this prophecy we'll see today will help us have even more faith in the Bible and, of course, in the God of the Bible. Is time really short? Well, the papacy thinks so. He said this, We are warned that we have little time left. Scientists say the next 10 years, the span of this UN decade, to restore the ecosystem, and that's the focus of everything at this point. The many warnings we are experiencing, among which we can see COVID-19 and global warming, are pushing us to take urgent action. Interesting. A universal day of rest, a green Sabbath. A couple quotes here from a great book called The Great Controversy. If you haven't read that or if you haven't read it lately, Oh, pull that thing out. There is some great stuff in there. The time was when Protestants, that's us, placed a high value, not just us, but that's us, placed a high value upon liberty of conscience, which has been so dearly purchased. Another quote, religious liberty is merely endured until the opposite can be carried into effect without peril to the Catholic world. We'll let you have religious liberty until we can do otherwise. That's Bishop O'Connor, one of their own um, people. And then this one, she is employing, speaking of the papacy, every device to extend her influence and increase her power in preparation for a fierce and determined conflict to regain control of the world. And be sure that that is exactly what is taking place. And so I praise the Lord that our God is with us and will be with us in every situation. And so we can be uh, assured of that. 
and comforted in that, that in the darkest of times, as we're going to look at here in Zechariah chapter 9, God will be right by your side. Let us pray. Father in heaven, now as we open your holy word, send your spirit. Give us clarity of understanding. Convict us, O Lord, and make us catalysts of your beautiful gospel to a lost and dying world, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Zechariah chapter 9. So we've been going through this series of Zechariah. We've been out of it for a while, so we, we kind of refresh a little here today. Zechariah and Haggai are post-exilic prophets, that is, prophets after the exile, so they're no longer in Babylon. They've been freed to go back to their city to rebuild. And that is exactly what Zechariah um, was brought on the scene for, and Haggai, to encourage God's people to finish the work to rebuild the temple and the city. And so that is a little bit of the context. It's a book of encouragement. The last section of the book of Zechariah starts in chapter 9 and goes through 14. So we are winding down this book. Um, this is the conquest of Alexander. I don't know how well you can see it. Um, a little bit, yeah. I, I'm, I can't see it much, and I'm even worse with my glasses on, so I don't know why I tried that. But I'll just look back here. Uh, you can see these are the conquests of Alexander. Now, this chapter 9 of Zechariah is going to talk to us about the conquests of Alexander the Great, the Greek uh, military leader and king, right? And this is hundreds of years before he was born. So again, like our scripture said, God tells us in advance what's going to come to pass so that when it comes to pass, we will know that he is the I am. And so these um, conquests come down through Syria, Phoenicia, Philistia, and then down through Jerusalem into Egypt. Uh, Tony talks a lot about Egypt um, and has another series that has done, he's done some research there even more recently. Uh, so he goes down through Egypt, that is Alexander and his forces, then they come back through Jerusalem up and then they go out to the east and pillage some more cities and, and towns. But the interesting part is, and whether this is the one, yeah, this is the one, and again, I don't, I'm sorry if you can't see that uh, very clearly, but he, so he comes down, the Battle of Isis, 333, comes down through Tyre, takes that out, Damascus. But you don't see a little star next to Jerusalem. He goes right through Jerusalem and passes back through as he comes back from Egypt, but never lays a hand on them. He destroys everything else in, a, in his path except Jerusalem. Why? Well, the Bible tells us why. Verse 8 of chapter 9 tells us why, because God said he would not touch that place. All right, well, let's take a look now at this exciting prophecy. If you forgot how to get to Zechariah, go to your New Testament, go back through Malachi, and you'll find Zechariah chapter 9. And I'm going to read to you verses 1 through 4 to start off here. Another picture of Alexander the Great there. And so look on with me in your scriptures this morning says in verse 1, the burden 
of the word of the Lord or the Massah and burden. This is most times used in a time of judgment. So this burden is against the land of Hadarach and will rest on Damascus. So this is going to rest on Damascus for the eyes of all people and all the tribes of Israel are on the Lord. So everybody's paying attention at this time because here comes Alexander. Now, Alexander's not mentioned. Again, this is 200 years before his birth. He could have been mentioned. Cyrus was mentioned before his birth. Alexander is not. But I believe when they say their eyes are on the Lord, their eyes are on Cyrus and what's happening as he comes down through because God uses even pagan rulers to do his bidding. Goes on to say, and on Hamath too, which borders on it, and Tyre and Sidon, though they are very skillful. Tyre has built herself a stronghold. And there's a sort of a play on words there in the Hebrew. Uh, Tyre and stronghold are from the same base word. So this stronghold has built herself a stronghold. She has heaped up silver like dust and gold like the dirt of the streets, but the Lord will take away her possessions, destroy her power on the sea, and she will be consumed by fire. All right, did this happen? Indeed it did. And conquest of Alexander. We have the Chronicles of Alexander and Josephus as a couple of historical references that tell us so much information about what happened here. And again, remember, several hundred years before he was born. Hadrach could be the ancient village of Hatarika, which is... Uh, mentioned in the chronicles of the Assyrian kings. It's around Damascus. Either way, it's in this Syrian area. It could be Hadrach, which uh, is maybe sort of a veiled way of saying Medo-Persia because Hadrach means um, uh, soft and sharp and soft. And Leupold, a, a very well-known Old Testament scholar says that this is no doubt a reference to the kingdom of Medo-Persia. The Medes were sharp like swords. They gave us conquerors like Darius and Cyrus. And the Persians were uh, sort of a synonym for effeminacy. And so it could be in a veiled way that this is this Hadrach, sharp soft, is leading us to Medo-Persia. Either way, it's right in that uh, Syrian area. Of course, the Battle of Isis was a very important, very famous battle, 333. And so we can see in our minds that uh, Alexander is coming down from north to south <clears throat> along the Mediterranean and just wiping out everything in his path. It's there in 333 that he defeats Darius and the Medo-Persians are on their way out. Of course, we know from Daniel too, right? Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, we remember that order. But here we see Alexander as he takes one thing after another. Now, Tyre, I want to focus on that a little bit because they were very rich. They had gold like the dust. They were very fortified, very smart. Isaiah 23.4, if you want to write this reference down, calls it the stronghold of the sea. They were very proud, and so when Alexander asked for tribute from them, they're like, no way, we're not going to give you anything. We're, you know, we're invincible. Now, 
How were they invincible? They were out on an island. Now the old tire was on the mainland, but now the new tire was built out on an island half mile out in the sea. They had a super strong military Navy presence. They had walls that were 150 feet high. So they're like, nobody's going to get to us. Alexander was also uh, very smart and very determined. What did he do to get out to Tyre? Well, he built, believe it or not, a causeway. So the old city was on the mainland and all the ruin was there. So he took all that ruin from the old city that was on the mainland and built a causeway a half mile out into the sea to take Tyre, which is exactly what he did. And much of it was destroyed by fire. So just like God had said, and it's going down now through Syria, Phoenicia, and Philistia, verses 5 through 7. Ashkelon will see it in fear. Gaza will writhe in agony. I'm going to focus a little on Gaza because that's what the ancient uh, his, history books do also. And Ekron too, for her hope will wither. Gaza will lose her king. And Ashkelon will be deserted. A mongrel people will occupy Ashdod, and I will put an end to the pride of the Philistines. I will take the blood from their mouths and the forbidden food from between their teeth. They had all kinds of crazy uh, offerings and pagan sacrifices in Philistia. Those who are left, there's some good news in the end of verse 7 there, those who are left will belong to our God. So those that were left, there would be a revival among them and become a clan in Judah, and Ekron will be like the Jebusites. So again, in your mind, see Alexander coming down and just destroying one city after another. And if you're south, he's heading north to south, you're shaking in your boots right now thinking, oh, we're next. But what happened to Gaza? Um, the king shall perish from Gaza, the scriptures say. And do you know in the Chronicles... Uh, or annals of Alexander, we have exactly what happened. We even have the king's name. His name was Betis or Betis. And the rest of the cities there kind of went down easy. They just said, okay, this guy's going to steamroll us. Let's just make a deal here. And they actually had limited independence. Not true with Gaza. Gaza decides we're just going to stand up to this guy and, and you know, we're not going to take this. Well, bad decision. Um, as God is bringing judgment upon the land. By the way, some would argue that some of what's going on in America is God bringing judgment upon the land. Let him who hears understand. But back to Gaza. Uh, <clears throat> we see that this king would be lost, that they would arrive in agony. And what the Chronicles of Alexander tells us is that Alexander was hot, full of anger, when he finally got to Gaza five months later, he drove uh, spikes through the feet of the king, this guy Betis or Betis, tied a rope through the hole in his feet and dragged him through the city until he died. So Alexander was not one to be messed with. Of course, his reign wasn't very long, but it was certainly one that you wouldn't want to... Uh, want to mess with, uh, shall we say, or get in his way. <clears throat> and so moving on now, I want, let's, let's move down to verse 8. So again, he's, he's just rampaging through. 
And now we get to verse 8, because he's gone through Syria, he's gone through uh, Philistia, Phoenicia, and if you're in Jerusalem, you realize that you are next. So he sends uh, a notification to Jerusalem, I need you guys to pay tribute, I'm Alexander, I'm the one who's destroying everything along the way, you might want to pay attention to this. Well, the high priest at the time, his name is Jadua, uh, um, Josephus tells us that, it was already paying tribute to Persia, and he's like, well, you know, I don't think we want to do this right now, so he said no. Well, you know what kind of a temper Alexander the Great had from what he's done with these other conquests. So he says, that's fine. I will come and destroy your city um, as soon as I'm done here with Gaza. So that's exactly what he did. He headed that direction. And so picture in your mind this army just hot with anger from their leader heading towards Jerusalem to destroy it. Now, at the same time, this priest, Jadua, implores his people, please get on your knees and pray that God saves us, spares us. So many of his people do. And in that time of fasting and prayer, God gives Jadua a dream, the high priest, and says, Jadua, I want you to go out and meet this army that's coming and welcome them to the city. Now, you're probably thinking, I, I don't know that that's going to go well. <laughs> of course, it goes well because God is in it, right? So he puts on his, his gorgeous, you know, purple scarlet robes. He has all the other priests following him. So here's the army of Alexander coming to destroy and kill and whatever. And here comes the people out of Jerusalem, the priests, to meet them. Oh, what's going to happen next? Well... Unexpected, indeed, is what Alexander did. Because as he saw them coming and as they got closer, he bowed down in front of the high priest. One of his military men, Alexander's men, thought, I think Alexander has lost it. Why would you bow down to this man, the priest? And this is all written in Josephus, by the way. Alexander replied this, he says, I'm not bowing down to this man, but to the God who gave him his position. You see, while I was in Macedonia, I had a dream that I saw this very priest and this procession. As a result, Alexander said, I will treat Jerusalem with kindness. And that's exactly what he did. He didn't touch a hair on the head of anybody in Jerusalem coming down through, going to Egypt, or on his way back. Now, Josephus also tells us that Alexander went with them into the city and made sacrifice, and that they opened to him the Bible and the book of Daniel, and they showed him where he was that belly and thigh of brass. And he said, yes, exactly. He's like, I was the one destined to take over Medo-Persia. Oh, how God was working to save even Alexander. Amen? And so indeed, he went through, he passed through, that's what verse 8, we never actually read the verse, did we? Let's read it now. It says, I will encamp about mine house because of the army, or the uh, <clears throat> uh, 
armies coming through, because of him that passes by and because of him that returns. That would have been Alexander. He passed by and returned, never touched them either time. And no oppressors shall pass through them anymore, for I now have seen with my eyes. If God can use a proud, pagan, sinful king to protect his people, what do you think he can do with Jesus, the lowly, holy king that is above all kings and all powers? Amen? We're in good hands today. There is plenteous hope for everyone here today. And I think, I just think that all of us are going to have a story to tell as time winds down. Uh, We're told that the last movements will be what? Rapid ones, right? And I mean, as fast as things are moving, uh, you just wonder, you just wonder, could it be in our lifetime? Uh, Could it be in this decade that Jesus comes in the clouds of glory? We're certainly not going to set any time prophecies here, right? But It certainly seems that things are coming to a close very, very quickly. Just want to read one passage to you from, again, from this great book, The Great Controversy, and um, then we'll close. I have a poem that you should have in amongst your um, things that you picked up today as you came in. But first, this from The Great Controversy. And this is, this is yet future, but we don't know how far yet future it is. It says this, As the decree issued by various rulers of Christendom against commandment keepers shall withdraw the protection of government and abandon them to those who desire their destruction, the people of God will flee from the cities and villages and associate together in companies. I, I just think that's interesting. Uh, we'll associate together in companies. I mean, should we be planning now to, to make these companies or is God going to direct us at that time? Okay, there's a company over here. I don't know, but it's, it's interesting to me. These will be dwelling in the most desolate, solitary places. Many will find their refuge in the mountains, the strongholds of the mountains. But many of all nations and all classes, high, low, rich, poor, black, white, will be cast into the most unjust and cruel bondage. The beloved of God pass weary days bound in chains, shut by prison bars, sentenced to be slain, and apparently left to die of starvation in dark and loathsome dungeons. No human ear is to hear their moans. No human hand is there ready to lend them help. But has God forsaken them? No way. (laughs) Will the Lord forsake his people in this trying hour? Did he forget Noah when judgments were visited upon the antediluvian world? Did he forget Lot when fire came down from heaven to consume the cities of the plain? Did he forget Joseph surrounded by idolaters in Egypt? Did he forget Elijah when the oath of Jezebel threatened him with the fate of the prophets of Baal? Did he forget Jeremiah in the dark and dismal pit of the prison house? Oh, 
Israel felt forsaken, didn't they? They even said it. Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me and my Lord has forgotten me. But God said, can a woman forget her sucking child that she should not have compassion on the son of her womb? Yes, they may forget. It would be odd, but a mother could do that. Yet I will not forget thee. Behold, I have graven thee upon the palms of my hands. Isaiah 49. The Lord of hosts has said, He that touches you touches what? The apple of my eye. And listen to this. Though enemies may thrust them into prison, yet dungeon walls cannot cut off their communion between their souls and Christ. One who sees their every weakness, who is acquainted with every trial, who is above all earthly powers, and angels will come to them in lonely cells, bringing light and peace from heaven. And I love this next line. The prison will be as a palace, for the rich in faith dwell there, And the gloomy walls will be lightened up with heavenly light as when Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises to God at midnight in the Philippian dungeon. We're closing now and turn with me to verses 11 and 12, Zechariah 9. Again, if God can use a proud, sinful, pagan king to protect his people and deliver them from harm, what do you think he'll do with the humble, holy King Jesus? Now, some of you may be thinking, well, that's great that he'll do that then, but I got issues now. I need help now. I've got fears now that I need help with. And you may be imprisoned by fear. So much is run by fear in our world today. Or by guilt. Something you just can't let go of. Maybe some habit has held you down. As if you are in a pit. Maybe the loss of a loved one. Or a divorce, which some say is worse. You just feel paralyzed with despair. But God says this to you. He says, you're not just a mere prisoner. You are a prisoner of hope. Read it with me. Zechariah 9, 11, and 12. As for thee, as for thee also by the blood of thy covenant, that's God's everlasting covenant sealed and ratified with blood, I have sent forth thy prisoners out of the pit where there is no water, the waterless pit. And then verse 12, turn you to the stronghold, you prisoners of hope. Even today, oh, I love that. Not tomorrow, even today, now, today. We don't know which of us will be here tomorrow. Today, even today, Turn to the stronghold 
Even today, I declare, I will render double to you. You're not a mere prisoner. You are a prisoner of hope. There is abundant hope for you as you are a believer in Christ Jesus and have made him your Lord. We close with this poem. If you have it, you might want to read along with it. Called Prisoners of Hope. Looks like I wrote this about 10 years ago. And it says this. It says, Kings will come and rulers go and nations will rise and fall. And none without God's watchful care but at his beck and call, God chooses the ebb and tide of nations, right? It's not happenstance. The eyes of God run to and fro beyond our human scope, but past the veil of mortal minds, we are prisoners of hope. If death shall come to loved ones dear, in faith we shall not grope, He'll break the fetters of the tomb. They are prisoners of hope. When chains that hold and bars that bind seem too much with which to cope, know, know, my friend, that Christ felt all this and more, O ye prisoners of hope. So when the world has closed you in, and you're at the end of your rope. Ever been there? Hopefully you're not there today. Remember that Christ holds the keys for your release. You're a prisoner of hope. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful that you have shown through archaeology that the Bible can be trusted, that you can be trusted. You've shown in your word through prophecy through predictions that happened hundreds of years before the players were even on the scene that were fulfilled exactly as your word said. And you've told us that I tell you about these things before they come to pass, that when they come to pass, you will know that I am. And oh Lord, we know you today and we're grateful that you are our God and that today, even today, is the day of salvation. Today is the day to turn back to you. Today is the day to give you that fear, to give you that doubt, to give you that thing that stands between us and you. And oh, how gracious and grateful you are to take it and to replace it with something even better. Thank you, Lord, that we are not mere prisoners without hope, but indeed we are prisoners of hope as we look forward to your continued guidance and leading in our lives today on this journey towards your beautiful second coming and eternity. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.